Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. I am Dr. Jim McDonald, Interim Director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. I'm Dr. Phil Chan. Welcome, everyone. Dr. Chan, good to hang out with you again. And I'm excited about today's guest. We have Dr. Tom Bledsoe, a returning guest to the podcast. So, Dr. Bledsoe, how are you today? Very good. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to talking about some of this stuff. Yeah, it, it's good to have you back on the podcast. We, you know, and I, I know we had you talk before about ethical considerations for COVID-19. And, and, you know, if folks find that interesting, go back and listen to our previous episode. Please feel free to do that because certainly the pandemic has been many things, but it's really also been just a, a case study in ethics on so many levels for so many issues, uh, really, because the pandemic has brought out a lot of issues. But I think it was important for us to get together and reconnect with you and talk about some updates about some of the ethical considerations in COVID-19. But before we get into that, Dr. Bledsoe, would you mind reminding everybody who you are and what you do? So I'm a general internist, internal medicine physician specialist, but I'm a primary care physician. So I've been working for decades <laughs> in Rhode Island seeing patients. And along the way, I've uh, had some uh, graduate training and work with the Rhode Island Hospital Ethics Committee. So I'm a chair of the Ethics Committee. And there, uh, there's actually some conversation in the field about what's an ethicist and who gets to call themselves an ethicist. But I think I'm a, also a medical ethicist. And I've also been doing some work on uh, sort of health care delivery reform, trying to make the system work better for everybody, uh, more health and more efficiency. Thank you, Dr. Bledsoe, uh, for joining us so much. And to our listeners out there, Dr. Bledsoe is underselling himself a little bit. He is a true medical ethicist and is certainly the go-to person that I think of in the state when it comes to medical ethics. So thank you, Dr. Bledsoe, for your work uh, in general and during the pandemic. And we'll chat a little bit more about that in a second. But before we dive into this, Dr. Bledsoe, when we talk about ethics in medicine, what are we talking about? Help us with defining or a framework. So, you know, ethics is a theory of right action. It's a theory of right action based on reasons. And those reasons are things that can be shared with other people. Uh, circle back to that a little bit. But, you know, so it's sort of general ethics. Uh, uh, there's some ethical principles that uh, can be helpful as guidance. Um, some, there's a little bit of uh, one approach to ethics is sort of virtue ethics. What would a good doctor in this uh, situation, what would a good doctor do? Some considerations of honesty and fairness and consideration, compassion. So, so it's, on some level, it's uh, sort of uh, how one ought to act. Um, there is um, some conversation about whether physicians have the same ethics as everybody else or, or so what's called common morality or whether there's some specific ethics. If you become a physician, then you take on some additional responsibilities and your ethics are, are different. Rosamond Rhodes has published a paper and a, and a book recently uh, saying that physicians really have uncommon morality. It's above and beyond and different from the normal. And the, and the, and the two drivers for her is uh, first is seek trust and be deserving of it as a medical ethical approach. And the other is to uh, a duty to use medical knowledge, skills, powers, privileges, and immunities to advance the interests of patients and society. So a little bit uh, more than the average person, but ethics in, in general, theory of right action, why, what, what one ought to do and why. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And it's funny when you talk about you know, having a higher duty, um, you know, than the general public, it's, it's really, that's the basis for the social contract that physicians have with the public, you know, and that's part of why physicians are allowed to self-regulate themselves is one of the things that comes to mind, you know, with licensing boards 
you know, in, in things like that. And that, that social contract is significant. But one of the things I want to get to a little bit is like, you know, let's try to remember before the pandemic, which admittedly, it's hard to remember before the pandemic uh, for me, but before the pandemic, what kind of ethical consultations uh, did you discuss with physicians? You know, what are some of the ethical situations you worked through? Could you share just quickly a couple of brief scenarios of things like that? Yeah, so so we do the uh, uh, consult service at the hospital and and uh, often inpatients, but sometimes outpatients, physicians who are stuck, um, stuck internally conflicted, not sure what the right thing to do is, or uh, interpersonal conflict. One person wants to do one thing and somebody else wants to do something else. And that might be another professional colleague. It might be the patient, it might be the uh, patient's family. So, so one that uh, came up a couple of years ago and isn't totally settled is, you know, generally people can refuse treatment if they don't want it and they don't have to take treatment. Um, when you put in a pacemaker and somebody that has an electrical problem in their heart, the pacemaker to some extent is actually keeping them alive. And the patient says, I want you to take my pacemaker out or turn it off and you're going to die without it. The cardiologist may be very conflicted about taking that action that will then result in what the cardiologist would think is a bad uh, outcome, but uh, you know what the patient wants. Um, another one is uh, that we had recently as a, a person who had some significant cognitive impairment and really couldn't make decisions for themselves, but they had a tumor, a lung tumor, and the surgery, removing a lung tumor might uh, actually cure them and they would live on, and they, but they can't really make the decision. So who gets to decide? Uh, a recent one was a woman that had a serious psychiatric illness and was at term pregnant, but wouldn't, didn't even believe that she was pregnant, let alone people uh, examine her and help her through the delivery. So the question was, uh, would it be defensible to uh, put her under anesthesia and basically do a C-section because she really couldn't participate? So, so the, you know, there's some hard conundrums that come up in the practice of medicine where the right path or the best path is either a different people have different perspective on it uh, and you try to negotiate that and uh, come to some agreement about how to proceed so that's the kind of stuff that comes up. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Bledsoe. And I, let's uh, pivot slightly to the COVID pandemic now. And I think, as you mentioned, you've been doing this for decades now. And I'm just curious from your perspective as someone that has really uh, uh, dealt with medical ethics for decades. I mean, how has the COVID pandemic compared? And what have you been doing generally during the COVID pandemic? And what, what has the work been like? So the, so the committee, uh, you know, we, when we get called, that's usually because somebody's stuck on the horns of a dilemma and needs to make a decision one way or the other how to proceed. And, and the interesting thing about medical ethics is you can't really do nothing because doing nothing is a decision in and of itself, and then it will have consequences. So it's better to decide and then uh, proceed forward. So the, the ethics committee, when we get a consultation of about a difficult case, and that's usually a specific case, we, we try to bring, bring folks together. We do tell them we're not a decision-making body. We're not the God Committee or the Solomon Committee. We're just trying to help them sort out what the issues are and, and hopefully come to an agreement on how to move uh, forward. And, and then we also consult on hospital policies for the hospital. So, that, so as specific difficult cases come up, they sometimes come to the Ethics Committee and sometimes review of hospital policies come to the Ethics Committee. We also uh, convened a, a multi-hospital group to sort of try to keep everybody in step with each other. So that uh, uh, effort was extreme with uh, uh, when we were approaching critical shortages of life 
life-saving, life-preserving technologies back at the beginning. And, and uh, standard of care, is there a special or a different standard of care in the crisis that might be implemented? So I had a chance to work with uh, Dr. Alexander Scott and others uh, uh, from the ethics community on uh, what were called crisis standards of care, just in case. I wrote a, a paper with a couple of colleagues in the American College of Physicians that was published that looked at fair access to limited resources and how you decide who gets the, the things in short supply. And then a really great project on the state level from the health department vaccine committee to both evaluate the safety and effectiveness of COVID vaccines and then also to prioritize distribution, decide who should get access to it first. So that was really nice uh, community effort, uh, really uh, impressive performance by the health department helping those of us on that panel. That was a great example too of just like what are some of the different ethical issues that came up in in the pandemic and I think and there's obviously more like one of the big issues that came up and it, it, you really saw this bubble up to the national mainstream media during the pandemic was you know one of the hardest medical ethical decisions was raised during the pandemic was prioritizing who would get a ventilator and deciding which patient got a ventilator, which one did not, which, you know, that literally has life or death implications. Now, as far as you know, did that happen in Rhode Island? If so, how did you work through that or how did you prepare for that? What are your thoughts on that? Well, as we were working on those crisis standards, we were thinking that we were going to have uh, not enough ventilators, uh, technology, equipment to keep everyone alive who needed the, those uh, that to support them to get through. And the, and the short answer on did we get there is no, not in the, in the first few waves. And, and uh, two years ago, plus a month or two from now, uh, when, when the worst of it was going on, um, there were uh, uh, some discussions about if, if someone didn't get a ventilator, uh, on what basis would they not get a ventilator? And um, three things that that paper I wrote uh, argued against and, and I think didn't come to pass and one is uh, is life years, it's sort of a complicated argument, but it's sort of a, what they call a fair innings argument. So people who are old are lower priority than people who are young because they already had their life. Uh, another is sort of social worth, uh, more important people get the resource. Uh, and the third is the, what's called universal DNR orders. If you have condition A, B, or C, and you have a cardiac arrest, you will not be resuscitated. And we argued against all three of those um, so that if there was going to be uh, 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 something that would be withheld, it would be really based solely on survivability of the illness. So poor prognosis would, would take uh, Trump other things. More recently, we did definitely had shortages in the last couple of months with Omicron. The numbers were just through the roof. And unfortunately, the toll on the healthcare community, uh, mostly nurses who left the field or left, at least, or left the state, um, led to critical shortages of beds. But the, the beds were there, the actual bed was there, the room was there, uh, even the ventilators were there, but there wasn't anybody to work the ventilator or to work the dialysis machine. Uh, from talking to my colleagues, I don't think anybody was denied because the, the, the room wasn't there or the nurse wasn't there, but should we try it and drag things out when we're pretty sure the end result will be the same, or is really now time to say that we've done all that we can and, uh, and there's nothing else we can do to save the patient? So some of those hard conversations came about 
but not necessarily because of the shortage of nurses or technology. Let me ask you this, Dr. Bledsoe, was there a case or a particular consult that bubbled up to you uh, the last couple of years, uh, either directly due to COVID or because of the circumstances that COVID created? Is there a story that uh, particularly sticks out in your mind as uh, being the most challenging or especially challenging? The, uh, in the worst of the Omicron surge, where the numbers were really high and there was a, a bed crunch, some patients would ask for things but not really understand what was involved and how it would be helpful or not helpful. And um, coming to some a common understanding of what's worth trying and what's not worth trying was hard. So, so a case of a couple who were both hospitalized with COVID at the same time, and the husband was very, very frail, and the wife was less so, uh, and the husband was kind of teetering on uh, very coming very close to the end of life, wasn't able to talk for himself, and his wife was dealing with her own problems, and then the poor daughter was sort of caught in between both the psychological trauma of having both patients sick, and uh, and at least one of them unlikely to survive. So that you know that was really a, a hard hard situation. I think in the end he actually rallied enough to help us understand what he would want to try and would not want to try, given the overall prognosis and uh, and the focus uh, in his case shifted to comfort and as far as I know his wife actually got better and pulled through so wasn't a great solution but no but it's it's that's a wonderful little vignette of of how the pandemic was full of tragedy Um, and you know one of the things you see as an adult daughter watching you know both your parents struggle not knowing if either one's going to survive and yet seeing difficult decisions being made like that you know, I think in many ways it speaks to just the psychological stress and trauma of just quite frankly surviving the pandemic, uh, because as people survive the pandemic, they survive with their memories, um, and and that becomes a bit of a challenge. And there's a lot of difficult situations, which require us to make difficult decisions. One of the biggest difficult decisions we dealt with was the vaccine prioritization. When the vaccine first came out, you know, but in the beginning we knew we were going to have short supply. Uh, we knew we had, we had to make decisions. But you were one of the people who was on our statewide vaccine committee, which helped decide which groups to prioritize for vaccinations. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that work and how the principles of medical ethics helped guided that process? Fairness is a big part of medical ethics. Um, justice considerations, almost anybody's list of uh, ways to do medical ethics, uh, fairness and justice are significant contributions. Um, it's uh, complicated because uh, fair access to a resource now doesn't account uh, for unfair life advantages or, or other things that have gone before, living in, our, in hard situations. And we know folks who live in hard situations and even have childhood psychological traumas will have more health problems later in life. So, so equity isn't just uh, giving everyone the same chance, but it's actually to some extent attending to to previous uh, uh, previous wrongs, previous uh, injustices. The, the group was actually fantastic. Uh, uh, Department of Health staff was so professional and organized. Uh, people on the committee were really thoughtful. So equity was our cross-cutting focus. But the other things that we were really concerned about are uh, vaccine safety, minimizing uh, morbidity, which means uh, illness may be caused by the disease or caused by the vaccine and mortality, and then uh, getting the, the vaccine out 
uh, efficiently, efficiently to those who are at highest risk. And, and to some extent, uh, that risk was based on underlying fragility, underlying medical problems. And also, interestingly, that uh, risk was related to ability to control your environment. So uh, my uh, son is living in Detroit, and uh, there's a big porch culture in Detroit. And, and if you drive around in the worst of the pandemic, lots of folks hanging out on porches and say, what are you crazy? Why you can't hang around? Well, that's a, it's a multifamily home and there's no place else to be to be private. So you work at a, a, some public bus driver, you're in a place, a position where you can't control your environment, plus you have these other vulnerabilities. Plus we know that is how the, it's a, by the time we figured it out, contagious disease that spread in close proximity. So, so fortunately, uh, even from prudence, people who can control their environment but want to control the disease might, uh, in, in fact did, we elected to go give the vaccine to the people who could not control their environment. And that would slow down, hopefully, the spread and protect everybody in the end. Yeah, thank you for that, Dr. Bledsoe. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to reflect on this in a second. And Dr. McDonald, I'd even be curious about your thoughts on this. But just thinking back to vaccine prioritization, I mean, one of the things I often say is that I really like being a physician in public health. Uh, because I, I love being a physician and having that one-on-one -on -one patient encounter. And I feel like being a physician in public health, you're really kind of like a doctor to the public. And that's been really cool to kind of educate and, and teach and, and you know do some counseling across the public. And hopefully a couple of people out there occasionally listen to the things that Dr. McDonald and I say. But when we look at vaccine prioritization as an ethical, through an ethical lens, I mean, I that was beyond the most challenging thing, you know, by far and away, the most challenging thing, uh, one of the most challenging things that I've ever addressed, because it was really a no-win situation. I mean, people were dying out there, and I think that you could have made the case uh, for almost any population to be prioritized for vaccines. And at the end of the day, I do think we did the right thing, uh, but the decisions were incredibly tough uh, with such a limited supply and just overwhelming demand. And uh, it was just, it was a tough time. And I, I feel like it was really a no-win situation. But Dr. McDonald, I'm curious about your thoughts during that time, just thinking back. Oh, it was a very challenging time. And, you know, one of the things I wrestled with was like, you know, we knew there was high-risk groups. I like, you know, the elders, people in our nursing homes were really highest risk. And obviously they were first, but like, you could have made an argument that we should have not vaccinated healthcare workers at all because the healthcare workers had personal protective equipment and were trained to use that. You know, on the other hand, some were still getting sick, not so because they weren't having good personal protective equipment, but they were getting sick in the community. So we really had to make that decision that we needed healthcare workers. And this is one of the things I've said to people is like, you know, we give you a vaccine as a healthcare worker. We need you to see patients. That's why you got it. You didn't get it because you were privileged. You got it because we need you to see patients because you're right. Decisions were made that were literally life and death, you know, because, yeah, we started with the nursing home community and started working our way down with other high-risk groups, but we really couldn't address every high-risk group as quickly as we wanted to. And, and, you know, part of it was just, quite frankly, a lot of it in the beginning was just getting the, the product out the door, getting the stuff out the door, and it just getting it into the right people's arms right away. And, you know, it's interesting. Some states took approach of, like, first come, first served, which is interesting. In the beginning, they got more people vaccinated, but they didn't save more lives. But they got more – their numbers looked better, but they didn't achieve the public health goal, which in my mind is save as many lives as possible – that's what the vaccine was all about, was saving lives, not giving people just simply a little box check to them. I mean, Dr. Dr. Bledsoe, there was a lot of tough decisions to make uh, during the pandemic. 
especially during medical ethics. I mean, what do you think we've learned from the pandemic as a people? Is there anything we should think about or should have done differently? I mean, it's really an open-ended question, you know, kind of run with that, if you will, a little bit. Well, this, uh, when, we, when we do an ethics consultation on a specific case, the last step is always the, what I call the preventive ethics review, which, uh, so I love your question. What did we do wrong? Or how did we get painted under that corner? What could we do differently next time around? And uh, so, so uh, kudos to asking the question. You know, number one is, uh, is, is be prepared. Uh, decreasing the effectiveness of worldwide surveillance for emerging pathogens, um, farming out uh, production of protective equipment to other countries where it can be done more cheaply, um, decided not to stockpile stuff. Uh, you know, that's all pretty, pretty basic. The, the fact that this was such a, a virulent, uh, easily transmissible infectious disease clarifies that we are really all in this together. So, so uh, uh, alas, uh, just a monumental blunder by our society of letting this become a, a, a political issue. We're all in this together. You vaccinate for yourself, but you really vaccinate for other people. And if you want to protect other people and be respectful of them, uh, um, you, you take your vaccine. Um, compassion for other people is also a critical thing to keep in mind. And you know, when in the scariest times when uh, people were dying in the hospital, but the hospital visitation policies were draconian, um, uh, not being allowed to see your loved one as they were passing away was, was really hard. And figuring out a way to uh, get volunteers to teach those people how to mask up and get in there and see their, their family member. And then the last thing is, uh, is that with all this talk about rationing and shortages and uh, do we have enough ventilators? And what we realize is at the end is that the, really the staff is also a precious resource, the nurses and the respiratory technicians and the other people who do the work. So uh, the practice of medicine is always hard. It's a wonderful, wonderful profession, but sometimes it's really hard and uh, to do your job and to do your duty, okay, but uh, to get thanks and get uh, recognized for what you're doing um, and be supported. I think uh, it wasn't necessarily the work, but it was sometimes a feeling of not being supported uh, that led to some of the departures. Um, people are winging it on the floor. Um, let's get the, the top rest down on the floor and, and work with them. And, and uh, if there's some innovation, they call it MacGyvering, figuring out how to get two people on one ventilator. Uh, uh, is this gonna work? Uh, how, can we, how can we be supported? So those would be my, my main uh, lessons. Yeah, those were great thoughts, Dr. Bledsoe. I was thinking like, you know, one of the things that you, know, you really reminded me of is just, a concept I learned when I was in third grade, this notion of interdependence that we all do really rely on each other. And there's one thing I saw in the pandemic was just how really interdependent we are. And I'm, I'm actually pretty happy about that. I'm pretty happy that I rely on other people because that's what community is really all about. So I like being interdependent. Mm -hmm. I like that I can contribute and I like that other people can help me. I like living in a culture where that's important because I love community. One of our traditions on Public Health Out Loud as we cue the music, Stephanie, is go to Dr. Chan for our final word. So, Dr. Chan, what is the final word for today's episode? Yeah, thank you, Dr. McDowell. And thank you, Dr. Bledsoe, for joining us. Uh, super appreciate it. Thank you for your, your work in this difficult field. And thank you for all you do as a physician. So thank you so much. In closing, I do want to leave folks with a moment of zen to consider throughout your rest of your day. And here it is. This is a quote from Paul Farmer. Paul Farmer uh, was a physician from Harvard who dedicated his life to helping others across the world. I say was because he recently passed, and I will say that Dr. Farmer was a true life hero. His biography is called Mountains Beyond Mountains, 
by Tracy Kidder. Check it out. It changed my life. If you read one book in public health, read this book. And he said, the idea that some lives matter less is the root of all that is wrong with the world. So thank you all and be well. I want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer, Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. Have a good and keep up the great.